0: One. Yeah, I can Everybody see. It. Can, can you see, see what it? I'm presenting? I can see it. Can you also see the QA and A box?
1: Uh, yes, I've got it. Okay. Okay. Um, so yes, as uh, as Ken said, uh, we're going to be talking about Mars 2020 today. Um, launched about seven months ago, July uh, July 30th of last year. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, it was incredible that uh, we're able to still get the spacecraft down to the Cape on the launch vehicle and on its way, because for those who were at my previous lecture, uh, we're only able to go to Mars uh, with traditional chemical rockets um, about one month every 26 months. That's when the window opens uh, where the energies are um, in the range that our launch vehicles can actually get a spacecraft out to Mars. Um, So that first lecture, we were talking about um, the mission. I I will do a recap of of what 2020 is. So For those who weren't there, we'll kind of understand what 2020 is, what its mission is, what it's trying to do. And then the rest of the the second part of this is going to be more of a deep dive into the uh, entry, descent and landing phase of the mission. Some may remember from the Mars uh, Curiosity mission, the seven minutes of terror video that made its way around social media. Um, We're going to be doing essentially the exact same concept with a few minor tweaks that have some advantages and enable this rover particularly to go to a much more hazardous landing site than what uh, Curiosity was able to do. And that's because of some of the the updates and the technologies, some of the systems that we have on board allowed the scientists to be able to choose a much more scientifically rich environment with uh, some more hazards in the landing area, but with these new technologies, we're able to actually uh, safely uh, get the vehicle to the ground. And that's what, that's what most of the, the analysis is showing. us. So 2020 is marketed as NASA's first leg of a Mars sample return mission. So Perseverance's mission truly is the beginnings of the search for ancient microbial life on Mars, and we're going to a very special place on Mars, where we think we have the best chance of finding that life, if it was once there in Mars's ancient past. Um, so, as uh, as Ken said, um, I'm formerly from JPL, uh, was hired in as a flight controller for the Cassini mission right out of graduate school. Uh, flew that flew Cassini around Saturn for about. 20 months or so until the, the spacecraft met its fiery end in the upper atmosphere of Saturn. Um, in that time, I'd spent some, some uh, a short little stint working on uh, the Mars 2020 mission systems development. So the actual ground, uh, the ground software and the planning software that we, we use to actually drive the rovers each and every day. Um, At that time, I was dual-hatted with uh, the MER Opportunity Rover. I was a systems engineer and a flight director for Opportunity and was with that mission until Opportunity met its demise in a global spanning dust storm in 2018. Um, And then before I left JPL, I was uh, with a a mission called NISAR. That's the next uh, Earth Sciences Planet uh, flagship mission um so it's a joint mission between uh NASA and the Indian Space Agency ISRO um that's going to launch uh sometime i think it's no earlier than uh may of next year um and then i got a a, a call from someone um out here in Dulles Virginia uh who was looking for a fault protection engineer to work for for lunar missions on the lunar lander and lunar gateway and uh you know, because working on Mars isn't exciting enough, my wife and I thought, "Oh, why don't we come come out to Dulles, Virginia, where it is currently uh, twenty nine degrees Fahrenheit and it is sleeting and snowing and will do for the rest of the day." I don't miss Southern California at all, um, <laughs> um, and we now are are working on uh, the Gateway program, so getting uh, astronauts out to permanent lunar presence around the moon um, sometime in. 2024, probably might be 2025 now. Depends on what the new budget is. Um, and because I'm not busy enough, you know, I'm also in the in the uh, military as a reserve officer, so I keep myself very busy. Um. So disclaimer upfront, we just have to do this. Just to make sure that uh, everything I talk about here is is my opinions. This is all from publicly available information. I will give you all the links to uh, the sites where all the information is. Um. I will say that JPL does a Really, really, really good job of explaining these missions in such a way that um, you can, uh, you, the audience, can you know, really become immersed in the engineering, the science, the mission, and everything related to it. So you can feel like you're kind of along for the journey. So let's talk about the mission overview. So the Perseverance rover will search for signs of life in Jezero Crater. And the reason we're going to Jezero Crater is from orbit, a actually a a graduate student who was interning at JPL, was looking at high rise images from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and was able to deduce from uh, the orbital images from the spacecraft that Jezero Crater is an ancient river delta, an ancient river delta, being a, a place where uh, water was flowing upstream and then deposited minerals into this river delta, into this crater basin. Well, Mars's uh, climate is very different than what it was in the past, so all the water is gone. The geological evidence is all still there, it's in the rocks. And that is, uh, that is where the scientists wanted to go when 2020 was first proposed and then eventually became Uh, the first leg of a Mars sample return mission. If we think life was once on Mars in its ancient past, and we're talking about microbes here, we're talking about bacteria, nothing, nothing too complex, but if it did once exist on Mars, we think that this rover delta is a great place to go look. The rover has a seven different instruments that it can use to sort of interrogate the area around Jezero Crater, it can look into the geological past to determine the climate, the area's uh, suitability for, for hosting life. And if we think that this place that we're looking at has all the signs that we're looking for, the rover has a very special instrument on board called the sample caching system. And what it can do is it can use a drill on the end of its arm that can core sample into the soil. And then it transfers that sample into the interior of the rover. And from there, the sample is is capped, it is hermetically sealed, and it is stored for eventual um, pickup by the Mars Sample Return Mission, which is now under study by JPL and the European Space Agency, for eventual pickup and return of those samples to Earth. The instruments on 2020, and we, we get this question a lot, The instruments on 2020 are sufficient enough to interrogate the past habitability of the site, but they're not good enough to tell whether there was actual life there. To really make a definitive conclusion, we have to bring the samples back to the laboratories here on Earth that have the instruments with the capabilities to actually detect those things. Um, The other really neat feature of this mission is that we can test technologies for human exploration. We actually have a very special instrument on board, uh, Moxie, here, and I'll I'll play this video here in a second, that actually is going to demonstrate um, turning Martian carbon dioxide into oxygen. So for for those who are fans of the Martian and read the book, like myself, this is equivalent to the oxygen reclaimer, that Mark Watney used in order to turn Mars's atmosphere into breathable oxygen, as well as rocket fuel for Mars entropy, the Mars's end vehicle that they used. Now, the prime mission, and this is this is very important. So the the rover is designed to last for a single year on Mars. That's about 687 Earth days. Now, the rovers typically are really, really, really good. We take really good care of them, that um, they can last much longer than their prime mission. Uh, Curiosity, for, for instance, is going into its ninth year on the surface of Mars. It, too, only had a, a mission, uh, a prime mission of one year on the surface. But it is, um, the, uh, the RTG that it uses is still uh, outputting sufficient power, and they're able to still do good science. So Curiosity is still uh, churning its way on the surface of Mars, um, even today. We probably expect that Perseverance will also be around for much longer, but um, for the initial funding, Perseverance is only funded for uh, a single Mars year on the surface. And within that Mars year, they have to do a lot of science. They got to get their their samples cached, and they got to get them deposited on the surface. And then, if they still have samples left over, they still have uh, uh, still have, uh, consumables left on board, and they still have science they can do, then you know they'll they'll propose and go after a uh, second mission. So I'm going to play a uh, I'm going to play a video here for us. This is going to give us an uh, an overview from JPL on on the mission itself. Um, Ken, if you can't hear the video, please let me know and I will exit out of here and reset everything, okay? Okay.
2: You know, Mars is the closest place that we can reach with robotic exploration that we think had a really good chance of having ancient life.
3: The Perseverance rover will land at a location called Jezero Crater. Jezero Crater is a very interesting place. It's a crater that once held a lake.
2: There are a lot of craters on the surface of Mars that could have once hosted ancient lakes, but not every crater that we think had a lake actually preserves evidence that that lake was there.
3: It had an inflow channel and it had an outflow channel. That means it was filled, the crater was filled with water.
2: In Jezero we have probably one of the most beautifully preserved delta deposits on Mars in that crater.
3: This is a wonderful place to live for microorganisms, and it is also a wonderful place for those microorganisms to be preserved so that we can find them now so many billions of years later.
2: There is no other place on Mars that has the unique combination of a lake setting, a beautifully preserved delta, and the diverse mineralogy that we have in Jezero Crater. So it's truly a special landing site.
3: The major goal of the Perseverance mission is to investigate astrobiology on Mars, and in particular, to address the question of whether life ever existed on Mars. The Perseverance rover starts with a design that's very similar to Curiosity, but we've added to it a whole new set of science instruments. And these science instruments were purposefully selected to help us in the search for biosignatures. We're gonna be taking uh, microphones with us. For the first time, we're going to have uh, that human sense on another planet.
4: Perseverance carries with her a grand experiment in space faring technology a helicopter, the name of which is now Ingenuity.
5: One of the major upgrades that Perseverance has from Curiosity is that it's able to self-drive for a distance of up to 200 meters per day. As the rover is driving, it's literally building the map of the road it's driving on, on
4: Mars. Scientists for years have told us that to really unlock the secrets of Mars, we have to bring samples from Mars back to Earth. So what
3: Mars 2020 is going to do is to drill samples, put them in small tubes, we're gonna seal it in its own individual tube, we set them on the surface to provide a target for the second two missions, which hopefully will get in development in the next several years and could potentially get the samples back to Earth by
4: 2031. Perseverance is a very, very profound first step in both our understanding of our place in the universe and a stepping stone towards human exploration on Mars.
1: Okay, um, so as many of the science team members, he's uh, on there. Dr. Katie Stack Morgan, she's the deputy uh, deputy project scientist. Uh, awesome human being. I, I can't say enough about my colleagues,
4: my former colleagues
1: at JPL. They're all just really great people. And uh, if, if they're going to find life on Mars or, or past uh, uh, preserved ancient life in the in the rocks, uh, this, this team is very well, very well suited and capable of doing that. Um, so as, as stated, the science objectives for uh, Perseverance, the, the big one is the search for signs of habitability and, and biasing. So this is this is truly NASA's first Uh, what we call an astrobiology mission. It's it's actually has the instruments on board to be able to look for signs of past habitability and biosignatures. So um, what a lot of the other rovers uh, prior to Perseverance have done is search for signs of habitability. So they look at the climate, they look at, uh, we can look at what the the atmosphere, the humidity, the the pressures, the temperatures, we can see that in the rocks. And we have the, the instruments on board that can actually look for that. And then the, the, the passive bio signatures is there are some instruments on board that even have the capabilities to detect traces of organic compounds within the rocks. So that's able to tell us you know, whether or not there was some organic processes going on within the rocks. And that, that will help determine which core samples we need to take. The third piece of this is, is actually core sampling. So uh, most of the instruments on board are meant to perform the sample caching Um, mission. So they determine which samples within the Jezero Crater site uh, meet all the requirements for sample caching. And then the sample caching itself is a a series of three separate uh, elements, three three pieces of hardware that actually are able to uh, drill the core sample, transfer into the rover, uh, contain it, and then uh, seal it on board for eventual placement on the surface. And then that last piece is preparing for humans. So testing oxygen production from the Martian atmosphere. It's, it's actually, it's pretty neat that uh, a mission of this size, especially with, with such an important uh, science question to answer, was able to get an engineering technology demonstration instrument on board with, uh, with Moxie. which we'll, we'll talk about the instruments in a second. But um, personally, for an engineer, I think it's really neat to have an instrument going on a Mars rover um, that is simply for an engineering uh, technology demonstration. Because engineers, we we typically don't get to to really play around with you know proposing instruments for, for missions like this. It's, it's all it's all the, the science team. So I think that was that's a really neat piece of this mission that um, that's going to really pave ways for future human exploration on the surface. Uh, so for the spacecraft overview, um, we always talk about perseverance is is just the rover. So Mars 2020 is, is an entire integrated spacecraft system. Um, the thing that actually gets deposited on the surface, the rover, is the one that everyone cares about. But there's there's multiple elements to the spacecraft system that, that actually get it to the surface. Um, so what is composed here is what is currently cruising on its way out to Mars. Um, that that uh, piece at the very top, that is called um, the cruise stage, and it's essentially a Um, It's its own little spacecraft. So it has uh, solar panels on board that uh, provide power to the whole spacecraft stack, as well as charge the batteries on the rover. The rover is the only piece that actually has uh, batteries on board. It has everything you need, including uh, telecom systems. a low gain and a high gain antenna, that's how we communicate uh, back and forth with the spacecraft as it cruises out to Mars with Earth. Um, it's got, uh, like I said, it's got solar panels. It's got a propulsion system for doing trajectory correction maneuvers. It's got star trackers. It's got sun sensors for, for figuring out where the spacecraft is. Um, those white panels on the side, those are the radiators. So that's how we do uh, heat rejection uh, from inside of the spacecraft. So we keep, make sure that we don't, uh, you know get the, the, the rover too hot or too cold. So the back shell there. Um, that next piece that looks kind of like a kind of like a cone. Uh, that is uh, one of two pieces of the aeroshell, which is uh, the the piece that enters the Martian atmosphere. Um, it's got its own set of uh, 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 thrusters uh, to help us with the guided reentry part of of entry. Um, it's uh, got some ballast weights in there, and the other important thing it has in there is the parachute. That's where we keep the supersonic parachute. Um, when we get to the EDL section, we're, we're going to talk about why we need a parachute. Um, uh, but connected next to that is what we call the descent stage, um, also the, the sky crane. That's basically a rocket backpack that is uh, mechanically attached to the rover. And that's what does the last powered descent portion of EDL before the, the rover actually touches down. And then that piece at the very bottom there, that is, uh, that is a heat shield uh, that's slightly upgraded from, from Perseverance, um, uh, not from Perseverance, from curiosity. It's it's really hard to keep the names of the rovers, uh, you know, together sometimes. Um, but that heat shield, um, just, you know, your standard, your standard heat shield you need for, uh, for any type of, of atmosphere, uh, planetary reentry. Um, the neat part of that is from an engineering perspective, we have uh, lots of sensors wired up on the, on the inside of that. Of the heat shield so we can actually take measurements of the of the re-entry field. That just helps us upgrade for when we do uh, other entry descent landings. We have a little bit more data on how the performance of the heat shield work, what the temperatures were on the outside, what the pressures were, and that just kind of helps us update our models uh, for future missions. Uh, so the rover itself is its own little spacecraft. It has everything that you would expect a spacecraft needs to, to perform. So we have Computers with intercommunication links, both prime and redundant, uh, spacecraft of this size doing this kind of mission, uh, there is redundancy on everything. So I'm kind of speaking here as a fault protection engineer. Um, We have at least single fault tolerance on pretty much everything. Uh, So you have two computers, um, you have two telecom boxes, you have redundant sets of heaters, you have... uh, not redundant instruments, but you have redundant power interfaces and redundant batteries and all these things. Uh, we, we put the redundancy in there to make sure that we can actually meet that one-year one mission goal. Uh, for power, same thing as what Curiosity had. We have what's called a multi-emission uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or an MMRTG. Um, we basically take uh, non-weapons grade plutonium that is uh, provided to us by the Department of Energy, um, you put it inside of a box, you uh, take uh, two wires of dissimilar material, and you create basically a thermocouple, and uh, the difference in the temperature between the inside of the box, which is very hot, and the outside of the box, which is very cold, is what generates a current that we then use to supply power to, to the vehicle. Um, at launch, we get about 110 watts, and uh, because it is radioactive, it does decay. So the amount of the amount of power that uh, the RTG is able to supply to the rover does decrease by a few percentage uh, points um, over the years. Um, curiosity, um, I'm not exactly sure where Curiosity's is, is power power is at, but uh, to give you a perspective, Voyager, uh, Voyager spacecraft launched in 1977 with an RTG, and they are both. Still able to communicate with Earth while doing some limited science—not not the full, not the full breadth of science they were able to do on their prime missions—but um, they still have sufficient power to keep operating 40 plus years later. So um, RTGs are, are, are very reliable. Um, the great thing about an RTG is, if you're someone like me who worked on a solar powered river, you don't have to worry about dust destroying your only energy source, which is which is the sun. Um, Curiosity was able to, to operate perfectly fine through the dust storm in 2018, whereas Opportunity uh, died a very slow death uh, because it just was it was starved of any solar power it needed to charge its batteries. So big advantage, and that's how one of the ways we're able to actually guarantee that we can survive on the surface of Mars for uh, a year is because we have a, an RTG. Uh, for telecom. Uh, On the the surface, we have X-band, which is what we use to do direct to Earth, what we call DTE communications with the DSN. That's how we get the command uplinks into the spacecraft every day. And the majority of the spacecraft data, including all the science data, goes through a UHF link. And we use the uh, orbiters in Mars orbit as part of a Mars relay network that we use to relay our data from the surface to the orbiters. And we use what's called a bent pipe method and that's how we get the data from the surface of Mars back to Earth. Um, for the majority of the data, because of how much we're, we're generating, uh, we use the orbiters instead because they have the bigger telecom packages, they have the bigger dishes, so they can do much higher data rate returns back to Earth and what the rover can do for the surface. And then of course, we have uh, thermal protections are so both passive and power switching here unless they're able to supply power. Uh, Mars gets very cold, actually. Um, um, in the winters, we can get down to over minus 100 degrees centigrade, and uh, sometimes as as high as uh, uh, a balmy 25 degrees centigrade in the summer. So there is there are thermal cycles on the vehicle, so we do have to have uh, passive thermal protection as well as the the heater elements. Uh, Some things that are unique to uh, rover service missions. um, One is the mobility system. So not the rocket bogey that's actually supposed to be the rocker bogey. That was a technology demonstrator that was uh, sent with uh, the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997 uh, to demonstrate uh, planetary mobility systems. And it is a it is uh, the same type of mobility system that uh, we use on rovers today. So it's a very reliable system. It works very well, and it allows us to basically drive over uneven terrains that we really that we really can't see underneath us, and it works very well. Um, so we've got a head and neck. So we have camera mast that gives us human scale viewpoints. So when we uh, we get uh, we have engineering cameras on the head of the rover, and that's what's able. That's what allows us to see what the rover sees from a human perspective. So that's able to, uh, that helps us generate our drive maps. That's how we're able to determine where we're going to drive to and how we also can avoid obstacles. This rover particularly is very smart um, in terms of of, uh, uh, curiosities. Um, It has the ability to do what we call auto auto navigation. So um, we basically can tell the rover where we want it to go. And the rover has a lot of built-in autonomy on board, that it can uh, use the images in front of itself and it can create its own driving mesh on board. And rather than, than the engineers on the ground telling the rover where to, um, how to get to the location, we just tell it where to go and it figures out how to get there. And the last piece is that arm in the hands. So and that's how we're able to actually physically do contact science. Touch the rocks that we want to actually observe, and then also how we're able to sample, cache, how we're able to drill into into the rock, get the core sample, and then transfer back into into the rover. Uh, for the instruments, um, like I said, we have seven different instruments on board. So, uh, Perseverance is essentially, a, a, in an engineering term, we like to call it a build-to-print vehicle. It is curiosity-like. But there are different instruments on board and the vehicle was slightly modified in a way to to meet the internal uh, volume for the instruments as well as to, you know, accommodate the different payloads and the the power settings. So it is a build to print in terms of the chassis. Some of the boards are are heritage, but the system mostly is is a brand new system because it is operated differently and its mission is very different than what Curiosity's mission was. So the mastcam z uh, this is a set of uh, advanced cameras that have both panoramic and stereoscopic imaging with the ability to zoom. That's something that uh, Curiosity did not have. So what they can do is they can basically use those cameras to determine the mineralogy of the Martian surface, and this assists with rover operations. So those are part of the cameras that we use in order to help us uh, determine where we are, um, how to create our drive maps, and that's how the, the rover actually is able to determine its own autonomous drive map. So META, META is called the Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer, and this is basically our Martian weather weather post. So the, uh, a series of different instruments uh, can measure wind speed, can measure uh, local barometric pressure, can measure humidity. It's basically like our own little, our little uh, weather station on Mars. Uh, MOXIE, this is this is the, the neat engineering demonstration experiment. So this is called the Mars Oxygen ISRU experiment. And it's an exploration technology um, that uh, will produce oxygen from Martian atmospheric CO2. So um, that, that oxygen reclaimer we were talking about, the Martian, that is, that is essentially the technology that Oxy is going to demonstrate on the surface. Uh Pixel stands for the Planetary Instrument for X-ray Lithochemistry. We're NASA, we have acronyms for everything. Um, so this is an X-ray fluorescence spectrometer with a high resolution imager that's used to determine fine scale elemental compositions of Martian surface materials. So this is able to look at very, very fine scales and determine what the chemical makeup of the rock is. So that's, that's how we're able to determine the, the past climate, the habitability, elements of, of uh, that area. So that's, that's that first piece, which is the, the past habitability. Uh, the RIMFACS, this is a, this stands for the radar image for Mars's subsurface experiments. This is essentially a ground penetrating radar with centimeter scale resolution. So we can actually see down into the, the river delta, we can see um, at centimeter scale resolution, we can see the, the sort of two dimensional scan of the, uh, the river delta that's beneath us. And then Sherlock, um, <laughs> we we certainly love acronyms and NASA. So this is called the Scanning Habitable Environments with Ramen and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. It's a it's a mouthful. We just call it Sherlock. It has a calibration instrument on board called uh, Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes, yes. Um, so this is a spectrometer with fine scale imaging that uses ultraviolet. That uses an ultraviolet laser. To determine the mineralogy and detect organic compounds, so this is the piece that actually allows us to detect the presence of past biosignatures, the actual organic compounds that could indicate the presence of past microbial life. So, uh, typically, with with missions of this size, we will we will basically cross strap instrument uh, uh, instruments so that we can answer all the questions without using a single instrument. So we basically cross-reference all the information that that the the instruments are taking together, and that helps us sort of put together a full picture of what this environment, what this particular area we're studying looked like in the past, what its uh, climate was like, what its past habitability may be, and whether it had all the pieces necessary to support uh, past ancient land. And uh, last but certainly not least is SuperCam. Uh, This is... (laughs) This is basically that laser. So if you look uh, on the picture there, that uh, that big glass eye there on the front, that is, is essentially a laser. And that's what we use to basically burn off the outer oxidized layer of a rock. So we can see down into what the rock actually looked like with before the oxidation occurred on the surface. Um, so the, the last really neat element of of Perseverance is, is what we call the sample caching system. So Perseverance will collect for the first time, we've never actually done this with mission on the surface of Mars, samples from Martian rocks and store them in sealed tubes on the surface. This is, this is how we're actually enabling the Mars sample return concept. So the sampling is done in three steps and we actually have, uh, we have three separate, uh, basically pieces of hardware on the, on the rover that enable the sample caching to occur. So the first piece of the sample caching is we, we have to first collect the samples. We then have to bring them into the rover and on the inside of the rover, it has another mechanism that's able to take the sample, uh, get it into a hermetically sealed tube and then place it for storage on the vehicle. And then the last piece is at some point within in uh, Perseverance's prime mission, that's at least that's the goal, they will find a spot within Jezero Crater and they will deposit these samples. And the what's under what's under study now is the Mars sample return mission will land within uh, a short distance to those, those samples. It will then uh, send a little row route, go pick up those samples and bring them back to a lander, which will then load them inside of a rocket and take them up into Marshall orbit. So perseverance has a requirement this is a, a level one science requirement uh, that it has to cache at least 20 samples within its prime mission it has I believe 40 I think it's 40 or 42 total tubes on board so it can sample more than 20 but 20 is the minimum requirement it has to cache uh, within its two years and that is what the Mars sample return mission will go out and retrieve for back. To it. Um, because the system is so complex, I was actually reading about this last night to try to sort of familiarize myself again with it. Uh, it's it's really complicated. So I'm just going to let the engineers who designed it actually explain it because they can do it so much better. It.
4: In terms of robots that go into space, the sampling and caching system on the Mars 2020 mission is the most complicated, most sophisticated thing that we know how to build. This is the system that allows us to take core samples of rocky material on the surface of Mars, carefully seal them in very sterile, clean vessels for eventual return to Earth. We've been working on the sampling and caching system for seven years, and that's because it's a tough job.
2: We're testing the equipment to make sure that it's going to work when we get to Mars. It has to function on its own. We have to think of all eventual possibilities and try them here first. And then if they don't work, change it now uh, because we can't make any changes later.
4: To drill into the rock on Mars, pull out intact core samples, seal them hermetically, and to be all done autonomously by a robot hanging off the end of a rover on the surface of Mars has been a challenge. We've got actually three robots necessary to do the sample and caching system. Our big robotic arm out on the front of the rover, that takes our drill, pushes it against the surface and allows us to take core samples. Then we put that core sample in the bit carousel, the second robot that takes that from the robot arm and puts it down inside our adaptive caching system. This is the part of the sample and caching system inside the rover. We've got a little tiny robot, a special robot arm called the SHA, the sample handling arm. It takes the samples out of the carousel and moves them through volume assessment, image taking, and eventually to sealing, and then replaces the cylinder containing the sample in a storage spot. All on its own in the matter of a few hours. We have designs on bringing them back in a decade. Mars has been at the fore of our consciousness about the questions of life could life exist in one of our nearest neighbors i think we have a lot to learn life or no life about the evolution of our solar system about our planet by looking in depth at rocks brought back from mars
1: so the interesting part about the sample caching is is um it is very technically challenging to pull off. But I think what is more interesting is the, what we have to consider is the reverse planetary protection effects with bringing back samples from Mars. What we're always concerned about is forward planetary protection, which is making sure that we're not taking our germs from, from Earth and putting them on Mars. Because if we're trying to look for life, if we, if we build our rovers in a not very clean environment and we go to Mars, <coughs> And then we take samples and we find that there's bacteria in there, it would be very difficult to determine whether the bacteria was there on Mars or whether we took it with us. So the neat thing is going the reverse direction, which is when we take samples of Mars, how do we ensure that we don't bring any potential Mars bacteria into Earth's biosphere? It's a very, very interesting problem. Um, that uh, several individuals at JPL have been working on for over a decade. Uh, so let's now move to uh, what I think is one of the neatest parts of this mission, which is the Ingenuity helicopter. So like we like we saw in the mission overview, uh, Perseverance is carrying with it a, a very, very, very special technology demonstration mission called Ingenuity. It's a small autonomous rotorcraft um, that will demonstrate controlled powered flight on Mars. Um, Something we haven't really ever done before. So there have been studies proposed about doing heavier, about doing powered flight on Mars, whether that's, uh, uh, whether that's uh, a fixed wing aircraft or a rotorcraft. They've been studies in the past, but we've never actually had the ability to attempt this. Well now, uh, Perseverance is, is going to take a small little cubesat uh, with a counter-rotating blade and they're going to attempt to, to demonstrate controlled power flight on Mars. And, and this is a tech demonstration. So when people ask, you know, um, you know, does you know, you know, how many flights does the mission, does the helicopter have to do? Does it have to be successful? And the answer is no. Uh, the helicopter does not have to, to, to take off and land for this to be considered a success. It is it's simply a technology demonstration. Now, the teams, as we'll see in the video, um, the teams have demonstrated that they can do controlled flight in uh, JPL's TVAC chamber in realistic Mars conditions. So we know that it is possible. It's it's just going to be really neat to see it happen. Um, the, the helicopter has a... Um, it has cameras on board, so we'll be able to um, when it takes off, we'll be able to actually downlink the data to the rover and actually see the thing take off in flight. You know, being able to see the rover on the ground from the helicopter when it's up there, I, I think is going to be really, really neat. Um, so they're only planned to have one flight within 30 sols. There are opportunities to do multiple flights if they're able to, um, if they are able to demonstrate one flight successfully. Um, I I do think that they will try to do others. The problem is uh, the helicopter is sort of like a dog on a leash for the rover. So when the rover moves forward, as long as the helicopter is still attached to them, they have to fly the helicopter back towards Perseverance so that they can keep moving. So eventually the the helicopter is going to become a a nuisance to try and do the the primary science objective. So they will do you know they will do their one flight and if they have an opportunity to do maybe one or two more they, they will do those but eventually after 30 songs they're just going to leave uh they're going to leave the helicopter behind so they can go off and and do their primary science mission which is to cache. so let's take a look here at the video here on engineering.
3: sometimes you have to do something just to show that you can do it When the Wright brothers flew for the first time, they flew an experimental aircraft. And in the same way, the Mars helicopter is designed to show that we can fly powered helicopter flight
6: in the Martian atmosphere.
5: From day one, this was the unwavering dream of our team, to get our helicopter launched to Mars so that we can get the opportunity to do the very first rotorcraft flight test in the actual environment of Mars. It's extremely difficult to fly at Mars because the atmosphere is so thin, compared to Earth, at Mars it's less than 1%. So the first and foremost challenge is to make a vehicle that's light enough to be lifted, and then the second is to generate lift. The rotor system has just been very fast. 2,000, 2,200, 2,400, we're spinning between 2,000 and 3,000 revolutions per minute, and it takes a lot of energy. So it's that balance of a very light system, yet having enough energy that's needed to you know, spin the rotor so fast to lift, and on top of it, having to design in the autonomy.
3: It has to be fully autonomous from the time it takes off to the time it lands. What we do do on the ground is we plan the flights, and so we determine from here where we want the helicopter to go.
5: Our experiment window is 30 Martian days. So we have planned uh, up to five flights of incremental difficulty.
3: very first flight, the main thing is we want to get the legs off the ground. And so we will basically go up uh, about three meters and we'll hover there
0: uh, and then we'll come down again. And that will be the first, you know, really major milestone. Most of our flights will be at the three to five meter height. We will be going horizontally, again, at a few meters per second, probably go out, you know, 50, 70 meters and come back. In successive flights, we'll probably push that further, try to go further. So our priority will be to get back engineering, telemetry, and not so much images, but I'm sure we'll return a few, you know, because they'll always look cool.
5: At this point, we've tested all we can on Earth. We have mathematical models that shows how it will fly at Mars, and we've tested it in the simulated environment that we can create on Earth. It really is time now to do the real flight test at Mars.
0: Nothing is a given, but we have done everything we can in terms of a test program here on Earth. The vehicle's performing extremely well so far. It's been doing exactly the right thing even right now when it's bolted onto the Perseverance rover. So there's a very good chance that we'll pull it off, yes, but it's still high risk. And none of us forget that you could have a glitch that, you know, could mean end of mission, yes.
5: It's going to be exciting, reacting to any surprises we have, we can't wait. (laughs) What's really most important is everything we're learning here is for the future rotorcraft systems that we want to introduce into space exploration.
1: Yeah, as an engineer, that is, that is going to be a really exciting part of mission to because, like they're talking about, it has to be a completely autonomous system. It's, um, it's not something where you can joystick it from Earth because of the one-way lifetime delay. So, um, not only do you have the difficulty of trying to do demonstrating control flight in Mars's atmosphere, which only has an atmospheric pressure at the surface of 1% of sea level here on Earth. But also, you have to do this completely autonomously. So, it's a very difficult engineering problem, but I, I think it's going to pay off for them very, very well. At least we hope it does. I hope we de- they definitely get a shot at, uh, at doing at least one or two flight demonstrations. Okay, so let's go to the uh, so launch. So, like I said, back in uh, July 30th of last year, uh, Perseverance took off at, uh, was, was, it? Fine for me, 7:50 a.m. But 4:50 uh, a.m. so very early in the morning out there on the on the West Coast. Um, up on an Atlas V, 5, 5:41. Uh, 5. Um, I'll just this guy
0: here real quick. Status um, check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Atlas V 2020. 5:41. Um,
3: there we go. We're ready to go. Lift off S. S. this morning, Joshua.
1: Lift off went perfect. Uh, huh. Eight, okay. seven, mm-hmm.
6: six. Five,
3: four, engine ignition, two, one, zero. Related and liftoff as the countdown to Mars
0: continues.
3: The perseverance of humanity launching the next generation of robotic explorers to the red planet.
1: Yeah, uh, liftoff was, was right on time. Uh, there were some delays in processing that, uh, um for those of us who have worked interplanetary missions before that got us our blood pressure up a little bit, there were some issues with, with processing of the, of the Centaur, there were issues with processing of the, of the Atlas V, and then there were, there were problems with, with ground testing, but they, they got, they got the vehicle off on July 30th in the, at the very opening of the window. Um, you saw there, um, for, for those of us who do, um, that is, Go Atlas. for those of us who do, uh, uh, look at interplanetary flights, um, our Earth's departure C3 velocity was uh, 14.5 uh, kilometers squared per second squared. So that is the, if you take the square root of that, uh, we needed roughly a little more than 7 kilometers per second of extra delta v beyond Earth escape velocity to get us onto the correct interplanetary trajectory in order to intercept with, uh, with Mars on February 18th. Um, so now we, we take off and uh, we're, we're basically in cruise. And Is crew just, you know, we just sitting back, relaxing, and you know, just enjoying our flight for the next seven months? No, we're actually we're, we're pretty busy. We're actually doing a lot of stuff in, in the process of getting out to Mars. So you can see on the diagram here, um, we have listings of what we call trajectory correction maneuvers. Uh, so we have uh, planned uh, planned places within the, the, within the cruise flights uh, to correct our trajectory on the way out to Mars. Um, our major activities, we're doing spacecraft health and maintenance checks. We're doing checkouts and calibrations of the spacecraft systems and instruments. So we basically just look and see to make sure that the launch environment didn't, you know, didn't hurt our systems at all, that everything still looks good. Um, everything is vibed, uh, vibration tested um, in a realistic launch environment. So we know that the system and the hardware is, is able to, to survive that launch environment. We just do those checkouts just to make sure that's, that's just engineers doing their due diligence. Um, the big thing while we're flying out there is lots of radiometric navigation. Um, we have to know where we are so that uh, when we do our trajectory correction maneuvers, we actually make sure that we have a good understanding of where the spacecraft is going to be so that when we fire the engines, um, afterwards we know that we're not making, too, we're not adding too much dispersion into, into the flight so that we can actually hit Mars' atmosphere. And when you get to EDL, you have to hit a very, very, very small window, in Mars's upper atmosphere at the right time, or else EL doesn't work. You basically either would skip off the top of the atmosphere, and you wouldn't go in, or you wouldn't go into into the atmosphere, or you would miss the planet's atmosphere entirely. Uh, like I said, those TCMs. So on the diagram here, uh, TCM one, two, and three is planned. Those are deterministic. Uh, TCM one is the, is the, is the biggest one that we perform in the entire flight. Um, that takes out all of the extra uh, launch dispersion. Um, errors that we induce. So when we fly to Mars, we actually uh, point the spacecraft away from Mars. We bias it away from Mars, and that's because the the Centaur upper stage is not clean enough to actually touch Mars's atmosphere. Um, that is a planetary protection uh, requirement. Is that the upper stage of the spacecraft cannot cannot actually impact Mars? And it's it's looking at probability. So it's like within the next. Hundred years in space, the upper stage will not impact Mars. Um, so so TCM one is what we use to take all of those, uh, those uh, that bias out of out of the initial trajectory. That gets us back onto the correct intercept point. We need to, to make it for Mars. And if I recall right, Tori Bruno stated on Twitter that the uh, twenty twenty launch. Uh, the injection accuracy was basically right down the middle, so we didn't have a lot of extra dispersions. That's great for us. It just means we have extra margin on our propellant when we get to the when we get to the red planet. Um, the last big thing, which is the team has been doing uh, quite a lot for the last couple of weeks, is EDL prep. So they've been doing the last checkouts of the EDL system, uh, getting the thing ready to go for when we actually uh, get to the red planet on Thursday for the EDL for the EDL uh, activity. Um, so I'll just go through this real quick. Uh, just a little crash course in how we actually get to um, how we actually get to another planet. So interplanetary flight is all about getting to your destination. So when we're flying through interplanetary space, we have lots of sources of error in space flight. So a big one is the injection errors from the launch vehicle. Um, If your launch vehicle doesn't get you on the right trajectory, pretty much don't have enough delta V in your spacecraft to fix it. So having a really, really, really precise injection from your is very important. Um, but other things that are always pushing on us, solar and radiation pressure, gravitational perturbations, there's, there's many, many, many others. So we're always getting errors induced into, into uh, the spacecraft. So um, we use uh, guidance, which guidance is our, what we call a reference trajectory. That is basically our, our transfer out to Mars that we design ahead of time, that our mission planners design. Navigation is we use orbit determination in order to determine where the spacecraft is, and then we use trajectory correction maneuvers in order to move the spacecraft back onto that reference trajectory that we want. So with uh, so with orbit determination, so we we have to know very very precisely where the spacecraft is, both in terms of position and its velocity relative to inertial frame, and we typically use the J2000 inertial frame as as sort of a reference point. Um, so the way that we do this is we use something called orb determination, which is essentially a statistical technique that fits a least squares regression model against our reference trajectory using ranging and velocity measure. So we call what we call it as range and range rate. I actually took a course on this in, in, uh, at Georgia Tech. It was one of the most fascinating courses I took because I actually didn't know this is actually I navigate. Um, our navigators at JPL are pretty much the best in the world at this. Um, they pretty much invented the technique on how to do interplanetary navigation. Um, so it's a very, very, very good technique. And Using, using the, the deep space network that we primarily use for, for uh, interplanetary flights, um, we can get very, very, very accurate measurements of where the spacecraft is um, within submeters and some millimeters per second in terms of velocity. Uh so the way that we get this information is we we uh we use a technique called radiometric navigation. So um a dish on the ground basically sends out a ranging tone from a tracking station. You can name it just like uh on a, you know, it's just a tone. Uh hit an F natural on a on a keyboard. That's a tone. Um and that's what we send it to the spacecraft. The spacecraft rec- the spacecraft's uh, telecom system recognizes that tone as a ranging tone. It basically accepts it, it, accepts it, and then it sends it right back down to the ground. Um, so what we do is the time that it takes between when that signal is sent to when it's is received is the, what we call the round trip light time. We basically uh, divide by two, multiply times the speed of light, account for any other errors, and we've got the one-way range and distance to the spacecraft from the ground station. And then for velocity, we use Doppler shift in order to determine uh, what the velocity is. So, um, basically, the frequency delta between a two-way coherent signal. A coherent signal is um, uh, is when we get uh, a coherent signal into the spacecraft. So that's when we have an uplink from the ground with a very known stable frequency, um, with a slight gain between the two, so they don't interfere when they when, when they come when the up signal doesn't interfere with uh, with the down signal. Um, And basically from that, we can get um, extremely high accuracy um, with our navigation for, uh, uh, like I was saying, in terms of position, we can do accuracy within sub-meters of um, of position. And in terms of velocity, we can do um, sub-millimeters in terms of velocity. And that's a spacecraft that's traveling, um, you know, essentially at, you know, seven and a half, eight kilometers a second. That's, you know, 200 million kilometers away. It's. It's incredible accuracy using nothing but you know, radio waves. Um, for a mission-like perseverance, because of the way that the trajectory works is we actually, when the spacecraft leaves, we actually go out of plane with the Earth and Mars. So we go up above the ecliptic, and then we dive back down and we hit Mars. Um, so we use a technique called DELTA-DOOR, which is delta differential one-way ranging. And that's how we're able to, t- to take out the out of plane errors from, um, from, the, from the injection. Um, So the way we do this, we use the Deep Space Network. It's an extremely, extremely reliable uh, system. We've been using it since the days of Apollo. Um, It's a array of radio dishes that were designed and are operated by uh, JPL on behalf of NASA. We have three complexes around the world. in one's in Goldstone, California. The other's in Madrid, Spain. And the third one is down in Canberra, Australia. We use them for pretty much everything. That's how we get our data. That's how we send commands to our spacecraft. That's how we navigate. Um, we can always use them for radio science and gravitation and grounding wave experiments. Um, when I worked on Cassini, that was actually one of the one of the experiments Cassini work uh, did while it was cruising out to Saturn was it did gravitational wave experiments. Um, so a lot of uses. Um, pretty much, this uh, these ground assets are the are, are the real they're the real stars of, of uh, interplanetary flight because without this, we pretty much couldn't couldn't do anything else. Uh, so now let's go to the the fun part. So what, uh, what Perseverance is going to be doing on uh, Thursday? It's crazy to think it's just in a couple of days. Um, so EDL is the shortest overall mission phase, and it is also the most technically challenging part of, of the mission. This is, uh, um, <clears throat> there are folks on the team who will work for a decade for something that takes all of seven minutes to execute. Um, It's a very, very, very difficult concept. Um, In spaceflight terms, we call this a critical activity. So the activity, which is land, (laughs) must complete successfully or the mission is over. We crash mission over. uh, We pretty much lost that first leg of uh, (laughs) of the Mars sample return mission. Um, So as a fall protection engineer, um, these kinds of activities receive lots of extra scrutiny and we really, really, really think about how we drive these kinds of events to completion through fault. So, for example, let's say uh, something we always look at with these events is what if we get a computer reset in the middle of trying to do this event? Well, you obviously can't have your computer reset um, when you're trying to, to land. And there's all these very critical events that have to occur one right after the other to get to the ground. So what we do is we basically, you know, we, we'd look at swapping to a redundant computer, we'd look at uh, holding holding that reset. Um, so we basically would not let the computer reset until it gets down to the ground. We basically look at all the ways of how we drive, um, how we drive that activity to completion through a fault. Um, even so far as letting a redundant system go down to get to the ground, because I'd much rather survive the rest of the mission with only one string, to let the whole spacecraft crash because I was trying to protect a redundant system. Uh, To add to the complexity of all this, we do this completely autonomously because of the one-way light time delay. And on the spacecraft, there is a sequence on board that um, they just, I believe, sent up over the week. I think they actually sent up yesterday. Um, It's a sequence called do underscore EDL. It essentially is all the set of commands that we need in order to execute EDL autonomously on board this, on board. So I'm a systems engineer. I like looking at conops. So this is a very useful diagram for me to understand what is really going on here. So approximately 10 minutes prior to entry, we separate that crew stage, that spacecraft that's basically kept us alive all the way out to Mars. We don't need that anymore. We basically get rid of it. The spacecraft has uh, the rover has batteries, and that's what. We, will power the spacecraft all the way to the ground. Um, that crew stage will burn up in Mars's atmosphere, um, so we just get rid of it, we don't need it anymore. Uh, atmospheric entry, what we call the entry interface point, uh, is when we begin to first feel the effects of the upper atmosphere, and that's when the drag begins to build up and slows us down. We hit a peak heating at approximately 80 seconds, so this is where the, the outside temperatures are going to get as high as 1300 centigrade from that just hypersonic reentry that plasma environment. We get our peak deceleration approximately 90 seconds after entry interface. And then once we finish with that, we're gonna go into a guided entry and we have a special technique um, that we'll talk about in the next slide uh, that will then trigger the parachute to pop open. This is a supersonic parachute because of the way that Mars' atmosphere works and the velocity that we're going at, this parachute actually opens supersonically. Um, afterwards, we have to get rid of the heat shield. We don't need it anymore and we actually need to get rid of it so we can see down to the ground. And being able to see down at the ground is what the radars and uh, the cameras use in order to determine uh, where the rover is and how to figure out um, where is a safe place to land and where is not a safe place to land. We'll talk about that technology here in a second. Um, After we get uh, uh, close enough to the ground, we basically jettison ourselves from the back shell and we fire up our rockets. We divert away from the back shell. We go unpowered, excuse me, we go on powered rockets down to the ground once we get about uh 60 40 feet. so let's say about 20 to 30 meters above the ground we're going to begin the sky cream maneuver so we're going to take the rover and we're going to uh lower it down on a set of cables about 10 meters below the descent stage we're going to continue that descent until the rover touches the ground uh, we wait a few seconds to make sure that we actually do in fact have weight on wheels Rover fires the pyros. Those pyros cut the umbilicals. The ascent stage flies away and uh, crashes some, some safe distance away from the rover. And uh, that's it. All done autonomously. Um, this is something we call the seven minutes of terror for a reason. If you remember from the from the perseverance, uh, or not the perseverance, geez, from the curiosity landing in 2012, this is what we call the the seven minutes of terror. And this is going to happen again. It's going to be hair raising. And because of the one way light time distance, um, by the time we get the first indications of the route that the spacecraft has touched the top of the atmosphere, it's already been on the ground for four minutes. So one of the new enabling technologies we have for EDL is called Range Trimmer. So what range trigger does is it reduces the size of our landing ellipse, which is our landing dispersion. So if you do a statistical, you do a Monte Carlo assessment of all the dispersions, all the errors that can affect where you land, you get this error ellipse, what we call the landing ellipse. Range trigger is a technique that we can use that actually can shrink the size of that landing ellipse uh, to about 50% the size of what it normally would be. So if you look on this diagram here, the blue is the proposed landing ellipse, and that's roughly 25 by 20 kilometers in size. With the range trigger ellipse, we can cut that down to approximately 10 kilometers in diameter, so much, much, much smaller. And that X there is the site where we want to go. So we divert slightly away from where we want to go because that's that that terrain is really a place we can't land safely because of the slopes. Um, but with range triggering we're able to get much much closer to the place that we want to go. So we don't have to waste months of driving to the location we want to get because of errors in our landing ellipse. So the second technology that we use, and this is all brand new, is called terrain relative navigation. This is actually a, a technique, this is actually a system that we're going to be using for uh, the human landing system uh, for, for crewed missions on Arvis, is we're going to actually use uh, TRN on the moon to do very precise uh, lunar landings. So what the concept basically is is we take a we have basically a computer on board, and we have a set of cameras, and those cameras are looking down towards the surface of Mars, and they're comparing the images that the rover is taking to a database of images stored on board the computer that were taken from the orbiters previously. So we have orbiters that have basically been operating continuously around Mars for over 20 years. So we have lots of really high resolution images of Jezero Crater. So the rover takes images with with this uh, TR, with actually it's called the landing vision system. Um, It takes its images and it compares those images to the images it has on board that were taken from the orbiters. And the vision compute element, so it's all this separate computer that's doing all this, all this processing because there's a lot going on there. We want the, we want the rover's computers to be taking care of actually, you know, running the rest of EDL. So we kind of separate the two so that we separate the processing power from. But the vision compute element is taking those images, comparing it to them, and what it does is it creates a solution to say where are good places to land and where are not good places to land. And after uh, after the, the TRN completes its computations, it basically sends that information to EDL. Uh, it sends that information to the primary, to the, <coughs> excuse me, to what we call the rover compute element. And that then determines where the uh, descent stage, that rocket backpack is going to land the vehicle based on that information. So. Let's listen to the team that actually developed the the concept because it's it's really, really, really neat. The way that they tested this is actually actually really interesting.
6: We are in Death Valley testing terrain-relative navigation, the new technology for Mars 2020. The terrain in Death Valley is very much like Mars. It has a lot of sand dunes and steep slopes. It's quite similar to the landing site that Mars 2020 will be going to. We're taking a copy of the system that will be on the spacecraft and we're testing it in the way that it would be used during the flight mission. Terrain
7: relative navigation gives the vehicle the ability to figure out where it is. This is kind of along the same lines of what the Apollo astronauts did uh, with people in the loop uh, back in the day. Those guys uh, were looking out the window and uh, looking for different craters and other features on the moon that they knew of from the maps we had on the moon. So that way they could figure out where they are and figure out where they needed to land to, to be safe. So for the first time here on Mars, we were, we're automating that.
6: What Terrain Relative Navigation gives you is the ability to avoid hazards that you already know about. So large hazards, hills, craters, things that you've seen before. With the camera, we take images as we're descending and we match pieces of the image to orbital imagery that we have stored on board. And if we make many of these matches, we're able to figure out where we are relative to the map.
8: If we didn't have terrain-relative navigation, the probability of landing safely at Jezero Crater is about 80 to 85 percent. But with Mars 2020, we can actually bring that probability of success of landing safely at Jezero Crater all the way up to 99 percent safe every single time.
7: We don't have an astronaut that we can put on board Mars 2020, uh, but we can put this this system, this terrain-relative navigation system, so that the, the spacecraft can figure it out on its own.
6: I could see it being used on lunar missions, science missions, as well as human missions, future Mars missions, of course, Mars Sample Return, Europa Lander, landing on a comet, um, pretty much everywhere you want to land, you're going to want to have terrain relative navigation.
1: In order to... In order to test out that system, they actually hired a set of Hollywood stunt pilots uh, for helicopters, and that's um, they basically told them, here's the pri- here's the flight profile we want you to to fly, and uh, they basically would take the helicopter, they'd pitch it down as if they were descending, they'd take the images real quickly, and then they'd pull back up, and then they'd reset and go and do this over and over and over again to really test out the system, make sure it was robust, make sure that it could uh, basically identify all of the pieces of of, of all the hazards in the area so that it could identify a solution of where it should land. So, like they were saying, 99% probability of a safe landing anywhere in Jezero and that that bump is what gave the science teams that were figuring out where to land the rover the confidence that they could land safely in Jezero Crater, which is why they selected it over other landing sites. So now let's get to uh, the fun part. So everyone remembers the seven minutes of terror from Curiosity. This is the same seven minutes of terror. So um, I will let the EDL team who designed all of this uh, speak for themselves. Um, this is a really neat video. It really gets the blood pressure pumping. Um, it's it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun, regardless of what happens. So let's let's take a look here.
7: Nothing can be taken for granted when you get to Mars. There's a lot of things we just don't know.
8: Space always has a way of throwing us curveballs and surprising us.
2: I mean, until we get the data that says we're on the ground safely, I'm going to be worried that we're not going to make it.
8: Entry, descent, and landing is often referred to as the seven minutes of terror, because it takes about seven minutes to get from the top of the atmosphere of Mars to the ground safely.
3: Spacecraft has to do all of this by itself.
8: There are many things that have to go right to get Perseverance onto the ground safely.
7: There's a lot counting on this. This is the first
3: leg of our sample return relay race. There's a lot of work on the line. Starting about 10 minutes before atmospheric entry, we get rid of really the spacecraft part of, of the rover that's been supporting us.
2: We come screaming in to the Martian atmosphere at 12 to 13,000 miles per hour and the heat shield is what dissipates all that initial energy through friction.
0: The vehicle will
3: continue actually flying itself through the atmosphere. It's sort of like a transforming vehicle that went from spacecraft, and now it's kind of like an aircraft actively guiding itself.
2: When we're going slow enough, we deploy a parachute.
3: The biggest supersonic parachute we've ever sent to another planet. It's critical for slowing down the vehicle.
2: Perseverance's entry, descent, and landing borrows heavily from that of Curiosity.
8: But fundamentally, Perseverance is a different rover. She's bigger. She has different instruments.
7: We've added a lot of smarts on the inside to make it more capable so that it can deal with the
3: landing site that we've given. The science team identified Jezero Crater as basically an ancient lake bed and one of the most promising places to look for evidence of ancient microbial life and to collect samples for future return to Earth. Uh, the problem is it's a much more hazardous place
7: to land. When you look at Jezero, all you see is danger. How do we go to a site that we never thought was safe enough to go to before? So the heat shield, which has protected us all the way through entry, is no longer necessary. We need to get that off so that we can actually see the ground. And we can see the ground in a couple different ways.
8: Perseverance will be the first mission to use terrain relative navigation. So while it's descending on the parachute, it will actually be taking images of the surface of Mars and determining where to go based on what it sees. This is finally like landing with your eyes open. Having this new technology really allows Perseverance to land in much more challenging terrain than Curiosity or any previous Mars mission could. Amongst the rocks and the craters and the cliffs, these things are hazardous to the rover, but these are the things that are interesting to the scientists.
7: Once Perseverance has figured out where she is, we jettison the back shell and parachute and light up our rockets. Those rockets help us steer to a safe landing spot that's nearby.
2: That descent stage takes us all the way down to about 20 meters off the ground.
7: That's when we start the crane Maneuver. Once the rover has hit the ground, the descent stage will cut loose from the rover and fly away to a safe distance. Surviving that seven minutes is really just the beginning for Perseverance. It's job, right, being the first leg of sample turn to go look for those signs of past life on Mars. All that can't start until we get Perseverance safely to the ground. And then that's when the real mission begins. Okay.
1: Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a really exciting day. And Ken, I was, what I was wanting to do was to showcase a, um, so I don't think we have enough time here, but I will say if you go to mars.nasa.gov website, um, they have a real-time interactive, um, landing simulation that will let you play through, um, the entire, EDL sequence from uh, crew stage separation all the way to uh, all the way to landing. So we don't have enough time here, but I encourage you to go and, and visit the site and, and really check this out. It's it's really interesting. It'll give you a lot more information about uh, how the EDL system works and all the little intricate little details that go into. We we just can't really explain all the little things that go into how it's. Working. Definitely check it out. It's it's really 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 neat.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, Mike. Is it possible you can uh, copy the link and paste it into chat room so people can see
1: it? Uh, I I will do that. Okay. Um, so let's let's set a few expectations for what's going to happen on landing date. So uh, landing on Mars is really, really, really difficult. Statistically, only about two in every five missions are successful. It's about a forty percent success rate, even even for for NASA. So. Uh, Perseverance is NASA's fifth landing attempt for a rover. We are knock on wood, four for four with our rovers. Um, but landing is is very difficult. There's there's no guarantees, there's, it's because it's autonomous, there's just a lot of things that can, there's a million things that have to go right and um, only one thing can go wrong for the whole thing to not work. Um, so for the key times, we expect entry interface here on the East Coast at about 3.48 Eastern time. Parachute deployment four minutes later at 3:52, uh, and then touchdown at 3:55. Uh, so out there on the on the west coast uh, just before one o'clock, as expected. Signal now uh, the rover does have uh, X band system on board that will be sending uh, back tones uh, that the EDL team will be using to to know when certain events are happening. Um, we will also be relaying information through UHF link up to the orbiters. Um, So they will try to hold lock with the vehicle all the way to the ground. There's no guarantee that we will have signal from the vehicle all the way to the ground. However, most that all of that data will be played back later with a relay and sent back to Earth. So we should have um, all of the information on the ground probably sometime later in the evening uh, once the teams have had a chance to just analyze it and and see how it goes. Now the reason EDL is going to be really neat for this mission is there are a set of I believe it's eight engineering cameras that are dedicated solely for EDL. So we're going to have three cameras looking up towards the parachute so we can actually see the parachute inflation for the first time. We're going to have uh, a camera looking up from the descent stage to the back shell when when we detach. We're going to have a camera looking down from the rover to the surface. A camera from the rover looking up towards the sky crane, and a camera looking down from the sky crane towards the rover. So for the first time, we're actually going to be able to see the landing occur in we're going to have actual video of it because all we have is telemetry to tell us how it went. We've never actually seen it with video. So I think that's going to really be uh, a really great PR uh event for for NASA. It's it's gonna look incredible once all the video is is processed and we can actually see it. Um, so what comes next? So after per- Perseverance lands safely, which it's going to land safely, um, the teams will go through a systems checkout phase. Which, so they'll do some checkouts of all the systems post EDL to make sure uh, nothing got, nothing got uh, damaged on the way in. Um, they will release uh, the big constraint, uh, the launch constraints. So for the MAST, we'll, we'll release the launch constraint for the MAST. We'll raise the mast cam up, so we can finally get uh, those cameras and the mast up and exposed. Um, we'll release the HGA, so we can do those high gain, uh, those high gain communications direct with Earth. Uh, we'll we'll um, we'll drop the cover for Ingenuity. We'll lower Ingenuity down on the surface. We'll back away, and then they will do their test flights. Um, and then we begin the science campaign, which is the, the reason we came to Mars: is to do the science campaign to assess the habitability of Jezero Crater and to take core samples for eventual return to Earth using this guy. Uh, So the Mars sample return is now under study by both uh, NASA and the European Space Agency. This is a notional concept for um, two elements of the the Mars sample return mission. The one, uh, that little rover that's closest to us, that is uh, the proposed, what we call the sample fetch rover, that is being developed by the European Space Agency based on its ExoMars rover that we had hoped was going to launch in the same Mars window because this was uh, the ExoMars rover was meant to be a technology demonstration for for ESA that they could do service operations. So um, we'll get a we'll get some on the next launch window in 2022. We were really hoping we were going to get to see that happen in this window. That is that's what we call the sample fetch rover. That is um, that goes with. Uh, the element there in the back, that larger sort of lander-looking concept, that's what we call the sample retriever lander. That is an element under study by JPL and will be uh, funded and will be developed by JPL. The sample fetch rover sits on the deck of the uh, the sample retriever lander. It's deployed. The sample fetch rover goes out, grabs the samples brings it back to the the lander. The lander loads those samples into um, into a a capsule that we put um, inside of a Mars Ascent Vehicle that is also on the platform. Um, And then autonomously, when the, you'll see there, bullet number four, the Earth Return Orbiter, which is being developed by the Europeans, when it is in the correct alignment, uh, we will autonomously, for the first time, launch a rocket from the surface of Mars for, to perform an autonomous rendezvous in orbit to transfer those samples to the Earth return orbiter. The Earth return orbiter will leave Mars orbit, and it will eventually, and it will return to Earth, and we'll put the samples inside of a, uh, a capsule that will reenter Earth's atmosphere, and we will have the first correct samples of Mars here on Earth to stay. There's a lot of elements that have to go to make that work. It's very challenging. Um, Right now, the proposed launch window opens in July of 2026, with samples returned no earlier than 2031. Um, It is under study, but it is not funded yet. So, well, eventually we will go get those samples. Um, It's just a case of when we will go get the samples is, is, is another story. Um, so for your resources, you can basically go to this link, mars.nasa.gov uh, forward slash Mars 2020. It has all the information that I've presented here, um, all the videos, the press kits, that that EDL landing demonstration that I was showing, um, as well as missions up, mission updates. Once the rover is on the surface safely and off doing its, its science and everyone forgets about Perseverance because it's than just doing it science and it's not the really the really fun interesting edl portion i think Then that is all i've got so how about i how about i stop sharing we'll okay yeah chat here okay. for the q a
0: box if we have a few minutes uh we can we can do five to ten minutes if you have time
1: okay Yep. Um. So, Veronica is asking, "How long will Percy take to send data? Send home the data?" Is nine minutes and twenty-one seconds. I believe on ED. I I believe the latest information um, from the from the team is that it's going to be about eleven minutes and twenty-one seconds is the one-way light time delay. Um, So, in terms of sending the tones back to Earth that are telling us what the ED, how how EDL is progressing. Um, that will be done in, uh, in real time with an 11 minute and 21 second light time delay. Now, the, the, the core amount of the data that, that, that we take during EDL, that will be sent up later on relay through the Mars Relay Network, and we should get that probably sometime um, later in the evening on the 18th. Um, if not within the, on the 18th, um, probably we'll have it at least by the next day. So. Um, just kind of have to be patient. Uh, all that information will be available on the Mars 2020 website. So, uh, Okay, uh, D. Hansen is asking, in my opinion, what can be applied to Gateway for the Mars mission? So uh, as we were talking about that terrain relative navigation, that is a technique that we really want to use for doing accurate Mars, uh, accurate landings for uh, Lunar Gateway. Um, for the HLS system for crews, as well as doing precise landings for those commercial lunar uh, payload services. Um, TRN is, has really been in development for quite a while, for for at least a decade. It's been study, But we're finally to a point where uh, the technology is good enough that we can actually put it on an actual mission. And um, I know that the Mars 2020 folks really fought to get TRN on because that's what enabled the scientists to... Um, to be able to go to Jezero Crater. Because we said only 80% without TRN, it is just too risky with a mission of this, with a mission that's trying to do actual astrobiology experiments. We want to make sure that we can actually get the information back um, from the river. We want to we want to cache samples. So getting TRN on the on the EDL system is what enabled us to go to Jezero Crater. And that's where the really cool sciences. So you know, fingers crossed. Engineers, we don't believe in superstition, but uh, you know, we really want to see EDL work well next week. And TRN is going to be a technology that's going to make that happen. Okay. Uh, so Rich Rich Lehman, I hope I didn't butcher that, uh, asking for the link to the Morris Landing website. I will post that in the chat before I head out um, so everyone can go check it out uh let's see here veronica is asking uh what did you consider in order to be enough sure that the samples will not be hit by storms after they've been positive uh yeah so we're talking about dust storms here um so the tubes are are hermetically sealed so the, um, once they're on the surface there is there is no way there is no way that the samples can then be contaminated from from mars atmosphere now because we're talking about um, dust storms the dust storm is what killed the opportunity river. Um, because of yeah, this planet encircling, we call it a planet encircling dust event that deposited dust on on the solar panels and basically made the the rover was not able uh, to survive through that dust storm on Um, But because of the pressure on at the surface of Mars is only one percent of that on Earth, um, once the samples are deposited, they're not going to roll away. They're they're not going to we we know they're going to stay where they are because. Um, even a 60 to 70 mile per hour gust on on Mars is, it wouldn't even feel like a light breeze because the pressure is just so low. So we know once the samples are deposited, they're going to stay where they are and uh, we'll go out and eventually pick them up for, for return. Um, all right. So Mike is asking, are there any ideas to purposely contaminate Mars? No. <laughs> um when we're, we're still trying to, um, we're still trying to answer that big question of was there life once on Mars. Um, until we're able to, to kind of answer that question, we don't want to forward contaminate Mars. So we take, um, we take our planetary protection very seriously. Um, when you're in the clean room, uh, folks are, are fully smocked. So they've got, uh, they've, they've got their shoes in and smocks, and they've got their hair covered, they've got uh, glasses on, they've got face masks. Um, every, you know, we make sure that we clean the surfaces. The, the river is exceptionally clean before it leaves Mars. And that's so that when we try to answer that question of we bring a sample back to Earth from Mars, is that, is that bacteria <laughs> that's in that sample, was that there to begin with or did we take it with us? Um, so, um, we're very, we're very, very, very particular about making sure that we don't take our guns to the list. Okay, so uh, Ken is asking when or at what stage the helicopter will release and how long could they operate? Um, so a helicopter will be released uh, likely within a few days of landing on the surface. They, they have to do the systems checkout first. They got to get all the data off from EDL and uh, make sure everything is working fine. Um, and then they will they will uh, release the dust cover on the bottom, they'll deposit the rover, they'll back up from it and they'll, they'll probably uh, they'll go off and do uh, their, their flight tests and then uh, at that point the rover will then basically just uh, go off and leave the helicopter where it is so it can go off and do its mission. Uh, Ken also asks um, uh, Hey, Kenry, was this question for, uh, you're asking about Starship, SpaceX stuff. Was that for me or was that for the previous?
0: because you mentioned that uh, in the next hundred years, uh, there probably no upper stage can approach Mars, but now, you know, (laughs) seriously building the Starship. uh, Yeah, uh, so- um, What is their vehicle there when they approach Mars? Yeah,
1: I I don't know the, so- um, that's kind of a little outside of, of, of my area of expertise. Um, I will say that um, as long as Elon, as long as SpaceX intends to launch um, their rockets from within the within the borders of the United States, they still fall under the FAA. And uh, planetary protection in particular is going to be very important. Um, I mean, as long as they're not landing in the places that NASA is trying to study, I don't think there's a problem and I don't think there's much we can do. About it, but NASA definitely will, I, I would expect that they will have a say in where starships are allowed to land simply because we're still trying to conduct those, those scientific studies. Um, so Rich is asking about, uh, does this mission have a Marco CubeSat range economy? Uh, no. They, the, so uh, a neat story about Marco. Marco was designed with InSight because in the original launch window of 2016, um, the way that the Mars Relay Network was was, uh, was phased at the time, there wouldn't be an orbiter overhead, the rover or, or the spacecraft went, went in to do its EDL. So in order to have that real-time link back to Earth, um, JPL created these two CubeSats called Marco that would fly along with InSight that could provide uh, real-time EDL information as the as the as the spacecraft went into Mars, um, but when we got to 2018, that phasing issue wasn't a problem anymore. So, um, long story short, Marco was created to fill a gap in being able to see real-time EDL telemetry for Insight. Um, Perseverance does not have that problem. We have we have sufficient orbiter coverage as well as sufficient X-band coverage for direct to Earth that we'll be able to see. We should be able to see EDL all the way to the um, Veronica is asking, are the cameras used uh, for the TRN on the rover? Do they start to work only when the heat shield is attached? Um, so those, those cameras, um, what we call the, the lander vision system, um, those cameras are, are turned on um, autonomously by the, by the computers on board. Um, they can't really start taking images until the heat shield is deployed. Now, I'm not exactly sure how, how the sequencing works. Um, But once the heat shield is away, they will start taking their images. And within, I I think I've seen within 30 to 45 seconds, they will have a TRN solution that will then be sent to the rover, um, to the rover computer that will then direct the descent stage of where is a good place to land and where is a not good place to land. Um, so Mike is asking, am I going to watch the landing? Actually, yes. I I will be doing a, a live stream for the Kansas and Space Center um, during the landing. Um, I will try my very best to stay um, very composed during it. Uh, EDLs can definitely be very stressful times. And because this is a mission I actually worked on for a little bit, I have a little bit of a interest in working So um, I, I will definitely do my best to try and stay uh Stay calm, but uh, I uh, my blood pressure will probably be a little elevated until I get down to ground safety. Um Okay, Randall is asking: Is the telecom system operational during dust storms? Yes, it works just fine. Um, the wavelengths for uh, UHF and X band are small enough that uh, they can penetrate right through uh, right through dust storm particles, even the largest, even the largest dust storm so That's that shouldn't be a problem. And are actually landing in. Uh, not dust storm season. It's actually not dust storm season right now on Mars. Um, so yeah, we don't, we, we don't have to deal with those problems. Um, and we don't have to deal with the same problems like what um, InSight dealt with is they landed following a major dust storm on Mars. So they actually um, were able to, I, I believe they were able to actually pick up when they were hitting dust with the heat shield because there was still lots of dust left in the upper atmosphere. Um, so Randall's asking, what test would be definitive proof of life in a Mars sample? Um, the only way that we can actually definitively say that we have found ancient microbial life in the sample is to bring it back to um, The rover instruments are, are very, they're, they're good in the sense of being able to assess the habitability and the potential to support life, but they are not to the level, they don't have the level of of um, accuracy or the sophistication or the, or the or the thresholds to really say whether or not that organic signature we saw in the instrument is actually an actual microbe. Um, we, we have to get the samples back to Earth in order to make that final assessment. Um, even if they find something in the imaging that's, that gets the scientists really, really, really going to think that they found something, we, we cannot say for certain until it gets back to Earth. Uh, let's see um can I think I got them all so I will post the uh, I will post the web link in the uh, in the chat for everyone to look at um, definitely go check it out it's it's really neat um, it didn't have that for the person you're insulating so you actually get to kind of see all the major techniques as they happen and um, that simulation should be accurate within one or two seconds there is a little bit of uncertainty in the exact timing because there's still uncertainties about Mars's atmosphere, but uh, that uh, that timing should be accurate within a few seconds.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, our time is up, so uh, uh, Dr. Crane is waiting. So uh uh yeah, really thank you so much. This is so exciting. Everybody was so uh, heated up. You know, it's uh, just amazing. So
1: yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Ken.
0: Yeah, stay in touch. I yeah, wish you come back again and to update. You know, with our the, the progress. You know, afterwards. <laughs> good. Stay yeah. in touch. Yep. yep. Bye 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 OK, so uh, our next speaker, uh, Dr. Crane.